This is episode 307. If you're a woman that is anywhere in the realms of your late 30s or 40s, 50s or 60s, then this episode is a must listen to if you want to learn things that you've never heard before in the world of perimenopause and menopause. And even if you're not at those stages of life yet, trust me, you should listen now to make sure you don't go through hell in a few years from now. There's also a really good piece of conversation in here about getting amongst the supportive and connected female community during this time of your life. We talk about the red tent, as well as practicing healthy communication with your partner to improve your sexual relationship and avoid the really dark outcomes of depression, divorce, and suicide that so sadly come with this stage of life for some people. This is a brilliant episode and I strongly recommend that you jump into it. So let's do that. Let's dive in. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? Good to have you here again with me as we bring the good word in the world of health to your ears. In 2023, it's my mission to coach 500 people to stop the binge eating and savage self-talk cycle so they can lose weight whilst feeling in control and without restriction along the way. And links to reserve your spot for future intakes of said mission are down below as we've currently sold out, which is pretty cool to be able to say. So get in now. Don't miss the next one or the next intake after that. Get your name on the list. The link for those conversations and all of that information is down in the show notes below. So scroll down and check it out. So to today's guest, I'm hanging out with Anna Goldsworthy today, whom is an exercise scientist and has a master's degree in exercise rehab and work experience in hospitals and research teams on various levels. A good way to explain what Anna does is she works with bodies and the minds that sabotage them with a special focus on the critical windows of change for women's bodies like puberty, perimenopause and menopause. She's been in this space for over 20 years and she's been with us here before too on episode 269. So when you're done here, go and get more of Anna from there. Uh, I'm excited to have you back, Anna. How you been? What's going on? Hey, Maddie. Um, You know, I've been good. I've been doing some juggling, (laughs) some life juggling and, you know, jumping between all the tasks, Mm -hmm. but really enjoying um, these little sudden little Melbourne drops of beautiful weather. I've been in the bay having a float bit of a swim out to the pillar and yeah it's there's a, a sense of promise in the air when the sun's out a little bit more yeah that promise of spring saying teasing us with like summer's around the corner <laughs> yeah it can happen you can feel a little lighter you can go outside you know without having to plan an extra jacket or something <laughs> i can't believe i got through winter without actually owning an umbrella though so that's you know great success for me again <laughs> absolutely whereabouts do you jump in the bay are you in elwood are you, where are you brighton uh, a little bit further around on the peninsula. Ah. So I'm in just past Mornington, Mount Martha. Oh, beautiful. There's a beautiful little, yeah, little beach down here. That's the best. Yeah. So what's been going on in your world, in the world of health and wellness? Like what's what's popping up that's getting you fired up right now? Oh, getting me fired up. Um, well, I'm always fired up about self-awareness being the first step with any with anything and people getting to know themselves before they, you know, just launch into this is an outcome solution and I want this or that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I guess also I've found myself being um, pigeonholed into being a female health specialist in a way 
rather than what I would hope that is everyone's excellence is that if you meet someone that is uh, female physiology between the ages of 40 to 55, that you would be fully aware and really thoughtful about what perimenopause is doing to their physiology rather than <laughs> needing to be a specialist. But no, we should all be, yeah, this is things aren't happening. Health isn't happening by accident mm. at this stage. We need to shift and change. I think it's it's that sort of medicalized piece of looking at problems, you know, in isolation and, you know, how everybody goes to the kidney specialist or the brain specialist or the skin specialist and that idea that it's it's only skin deep, you know, to go with that metaphor, is that the yeah. problem's only skin deep to a dermatologist, you know, in theory, um, with the way that sort of medical training happens and to sit in front of a person and be like, oh, you're a complete human that's got all of these integrated systems and, you know, you've got a stage of life which determines a few different other things as well. I think that's sort of very much on the natural holistic side that that comes a bit more organically looking at a person as a as a whole system of systems yeah and I was lucky enough to have a sit down coffee with a, a perimenopause specialist doctor the other day and she was also equally as frustrated with this idea about uh, women that go seeking curiosity about this stage and they get dismissed Mm. Um, rather than going, hey, this isn't my speciality, go over to the Australasian Menopause Society website, find yourself someone who's done the extra training. Yeah, that's, yeah, we had a nice little rant for most of our coffee over those types of frustrations, yeah. <laughs> it's always good when you can connect with a health professional and just get on one of those rants and get a bit of a detox going. <laughs> to- <laughs> yeah, different perspectives, different worlds. It was, yeah, that no, was good. But it does, as you say, drive you to be more like, okay, we just got to let more humans know that, you know, you can really take yourself seriously in this time. You're not going crazy. Yeah. And yeah, you can yeah, really search for what's reliable in me that I know is not good enough at the moment for the life that I want to pursue. What what do you think happens with the dismissal of those experiences for well, I mean anyone, but particularly this group of women? Do, do you find that people just sort of accept it and then internalize the problem as there's a problem with me, I'm wrong about my own body or and I presume there's a group of people like that and then there's others that are like, nope. My body's not right. I'm going to go find the person. And maybe there are people that listen to podcasts like this, you know. Yeah. I definitely think there's that first person and maybe there's sort of an edge of curiosity, but they were maybe always ready just to listen to what they were dealt. And, you know, maybe they just, because I actually just finished running a masterclass series and a couple of the attendants, attendees didn't even know what perimenopause was. Wow. And that still blew my mind. Like, yeah, that still blew my mind. And I guess it's because my world, I come in the assumption that people have a little bit of an idea or at least know the word. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, we go back a generation and there's, you know, it was super secretive and we don't talk about it. You know, you're lesser if you're in this stage and those cultural challenges haven't gone anywhere. They're still still there. But, yeah, there's. I think there's a bit of literally people not knowing that this is a change that happens to their body and then so seeking out, as you say, those superficial layers of my skin's gone a bit weird or, you know, those types of ideas. But I do think, and I've met a few 
by chance, you know, through, you know, I've, I've seen this person, I saw this person and I'm still searching and I'm so frustrated but I'm hoping there's someone out there that's got the conversation that I'm wanting to have. But just tricky that there's not that many humans that are easy to get to that are going to have those big, broad conversations. Do you think it's a limitation of the system or a limitation of the individual that they think possibly, and the individual being the medical practitioners or the health practitioners, that where they think, oh, I don't know about that, let's just ignore it, let's just not go into that because <laughs> then I might lose a client or um, I might yeah. have to refer them on, you know, like what are your thoughts? Yeah, I I do struggle with that last one because my the way I work is not like that. If I meet someone and majority of what they're talking about can't be influenced by my skill set, I look for the person that they should go and then talk to or I don't think movement's the first call, I think breath work's the first call or there's a skill that I don't have which I think is the first call. So I do really struggle with, yeah, the businesses that are just wanting to hold on to that person and make not make stuff up but just deal with the little that they know and assume that that's enough. Um, I do think that there are, I'm surprised, you know when you get that weird ego slap that not everyone wants to do health like you want to present it and I was lucky enough to push, you know, get thrown back into reality um, more recently meeting a couple of people where it was, you know, these are the things that uh, overlap in what's happening for you and the stage of life that you're at and they just didn't want to go there. Mm. So maybe that comes back to lots of very deep personal situations that, you know, at the time I didn't feel safe to them or something feels a bit too scary and, yeah, I honour them on their path but I won't I won't lie, it does make me feel a little bit frustrated and I've got to sit with that and get over that as as a human as well and go, oh, I wish I could have helped them with that because I really think that being clear on how many overlaps, like, for example, post-COVID shares a lot of perimenopause symptoms. So which, which you know, how should, which window should we be looking through to make it clear that we're actually being as helpful as possible with one symptom that could be, you know, many different things. So yeah, I think it is it is tricky. I think perimenopause wasn't spoken about very much and I think if you go down the rabbit hole, which most people's phones will be going, take the algorithm taking them there now anyway, that there's heaps out there but, again, in great frustration, the difference between a health industry and a fitness industry maybe, for example, is that the fitness industry proposes to have the answers it sort of takes away the complexity and this is right, this is wrong, you know, burn this and uh, it just... Which is really appealing, it, right? Because it's like simplifying it for the person that's confused. The problem. Yeah, and when you do go into it, all the arguments that are happening in the background because the science is relatively young is that I do feel for the consumer because they're in there going, well, now I'm just completely consumed, confused and overwhelmed with information. Now I don't know how to make a decision. Yeah. yeah. What's that information paralysis type of idea? Yeah. 
I operate yeah. in a similar way, um, which is maybe an, uh, an abundance mindset of, yeah, if that person's not at the stage of their journey where they need my skill set or my skill set would be stretched. I, and maybe the podcast has helped me do this because I've now got an absolute laundry list of contacts. Yeah. Um, and so it's like, oh, I don't think I'm the right person for you, but have you met you know, Anna. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I'm at that stage in my career where I really love that. Like I just, I love that there's a solution for people, not that you have to be the solution. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's still weird for people to receive as well. Cause I think people maybe feel like if they're engaging, then they're owing something to the relationship, mm. but you know, a healthcare relationship has a longevity as well. And you know, when you get to that point where one or the others run out of what they need, then, you know, it's an appropriate breakup. Yeah. Or it's the appropriate progression to to move on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious as well um, with your experience that, you know, some people didn't even know the word perimenopause. Maybe let's just clear that up for everybody. Mm. What is it? <laughs> perimenopause is so, and there's, it's funny how everyone hates the word menopause <laughs> and post-menopause technically, um, but it all it kind of rolls all the way back to puberty. So I've got these critical windows of change where so puberty is this signaling from the brain to the ovaries to start sending out and producing more hormones. And we've got a set amount, the theory is we've got a set amount of eggs and that we cruise through them through our lives. We go through the reproductive um, phase of our life which gets called pre-menopause. So we've got eggs and in theory our system is healthy and um, for all those that don't know, a routine um, menstrual cycle is considered one of the um, vital signs of life. We're there with heart rate, blood pressure and all those kinds of things. So we go from puberty, we get an established um, menstrual cycle within a couple of years then we go into pre-menopause. So we've got this constant rhythm going on that's in, in theory predictable in our body. And then perimenopause is where the body's starting to run out of those signals from the egg and that the brain as the body's sending out signals, I don't have as much of what I had before. And then the body and the brain are desperately trying to upregulate hormones to make things happen and keep this drive of eggs coming. But ultimately, we go into anovulatory phases. So we'll have an ovulatory phase where an egg gets released and then a couple of phases where they don't. And the experience for the person in that, which can last upwards of 10 years, this slow decline of hormones because the signal's not required anymore mm-hmm. of the two primary hormones that we talk about, which is estradiol, and there's another couple of versions of that, and progesterone. So they start slowly changing and this is about somewhere in the 40s and women, people with female physiology will start to notice changes in their body which they're just subtly offensive really because (laughs) we weren't taught to really honour and celebrate oestrogen as this amazing muscle-building hormone and You know, most of our years through our 20s, we didn't have to pick up a dumbbell. We had reasonable posture and and that's, you know, in part due to estrogen cruising around in our body. And then as it slowly starts coming down between 40 and 50, we start to notice muscle wasting and weakness and, you know, you make a noise when you get up from the couch or, (laughs) you know, all those kinds of things where our body starts subtly changing and things that were 
easy in our 30s suddenly become a little bit tricky in our 40s. And every system in our body is influenced by hormones, whether directly or indirectly. So it's either the obvious things like muscles changing, sleep can be a big one, fatigue is a big symptom change that are more general or there can be, you know, our skin's hugely affected by hormones, uh, our organs, you know, these subtle changes it's a bit weird how often after our 40s we just find ourselves having more, you know, air quote, serious checks at the doctors yeah. about, you know, some of the more scary changes that are coming on. And then we get to menopause, which is literally one day where we haven't had a menstrual cycle for a year and then from that one day onward it's into post-menopause. And if I could take back my opportunity at the start of the call of something that's really annoying me and that I want everyone that listens to Maddie to know is that once you hit post-menopause, it's not, oh, I'm all past that, it's all over. We're in a completely different physiological state and it's not that that period has ended and it might have been a bit difficult for some people. It's that our body now is completely reliant on our lifestyle choices it doesn't have this rich, potent uh, hormone fluctuations going on to support our organs and our muscles and our brains. We're now simply left with our lifestyle choices and how we choose, yeah, the things that we do around our day-to-day that are keeping our bones healthy, our muscles strong, our mental health state. Yeah, that's that's yeah that's a grind my gear one where I will often talk to women in their 60s and they'll go oh I'm past that no 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 you're in the thick of it (laughs) you're in the thick of it now yeah I'm curious I um I've worked with women in these same demographics and experiences um although fortunately haven't been categorized as a female health expert (laughs) (laughs) yeah um but um I'm curious when you sort of hit menopause, post-menopause, just that I've had the same experience where people are like, yep, yeah, I've done with that phase of life. Um, I'm not sure if you do something similar, but I have this idea and I've read about it a little bit, but I have this idea, right, that the body has been cycling theoretically every 28 days approximately for decades at this point. Yeah. And the idea that those cycles uh, are just gone from Sure, the hormones might not be the same, but that the the body that had that monthly experience is is still going through some kind of repetitive cycle. And so, mm-hmm. what I get people to do is basically, whether it be eating or intermittent fasting or particular types of training, weight training, nutrition, I still get them to use the moon as the determinant for that monthly cycle. Which for some people, they're like the moon? What, Maddie? Like, what do you mean? Um, And, you know, it's the idea that obviously in the absence of a period or the menstrual cycle, we need some point of approximate four-week reference. Um, And there's obviously a lot of woo-woo rabbit holes we can go down around the relationship between women's health and the moon. But, um, But do you find that yeah, as you said, you're in the thick of it. Is that is that a tool that you use or is that the way that you think about it too, is that those monthly cycles are still happening? There's just not that period piece that's the obvious, oh, I'm cycling. Yeah, and I love the idea of the moon. I think that's a cool one and agree. I can imagine some people will take it and some <laughs> yes. people won't. Or some people will notice it and maybe, you know, I'll have it sometimes, not all the time, and that's fine. So similarly with... Um, 
training and resistance training, it becomes about a cycle because when people are training, trying to create a habit and maybe they haven't been exercising in a habitual way in the past and like many people, they get into it and they do it for a set amount of time and then they stop again. Really inherent in the way that I write programs is that there's um, set blocks and there's intention in the set blocks and they're usually a monthly cycle with these kind of deload and decompress periods, which we could also cross over with the moon as well. So there's this constant kind of cycle. Now what's my body telling me rather than going, I'm doing a program and I finish this program when I just kind of forget to do it or life gets too busy or there's an end point and I forgot to call my trainer and recreate a new program. It's like, no, it happens every four weeks and there's a set now what's my body telling me have I been listening to my body you know what's going on what are my indicators that I am in health or that there's something else for me to adjust and work on so constantly in that sort of monthly cycle still yeah yeah I'm I'm curious obviously we sort of started with perimenopause and ended up at postmenopause but I'm curious for everyone listening that say 30s 40s 50s still perimenopause phase with what you've seen with postmenopausal experiences where people didn't really, you know, focus on their health much throughout their life, it wasn't a real priority, consumed with stress and family and life and all of the things that are, that are there to take our attention, what advice or suggestions would you give to people in perimenopause to do with their body and their health and their prioritization of self in order to make those experiences down the track more manageable and less overwhelming and less doomsday-like you know, because obviously people can end up in really, really dark, horrible, depressing situations with some transitions to postmenopause. Yeah, I think there's a little segue. I'll try and remember your question. That's okay. <laughs> I'm not great with two thoughts at once. But just so we don't lose this opportunity, one of the most significant things that happens for 40 to 55% of women in this perimenopausal window, there's an increase in anxiety and depression relating to the regulation of our minds and our brains and the role of estrogen and um, progesterone in neurotransmitters in our brains. So there really is um, a shift in sense of self and there can be a real need to redefine where am I and what am I doing. So, you know, careers start to feel different. Sometimes symptoms can be so overwhelming that we can't do our work anymore and that's like significant devastation for some people and in a way it's part of this intention to make people aware is that self-awareness I think is one of the biggest skills that we can bring to the game that allows us to know this is a symptom of my experience this isn't me so when do I ask for help what tools have I got to pull away and regain some balance and, you know, know how to make decisions in that way. So I think that that's significant. And there was some data because I know you love data and I'm really bad at it. So I made sure I went and got it. (laughs) So between 99 and 2017, so that's pre-COVID, suicide rates within females between 45 and 54-year-olds, so within that real perimenopausal space, went up to 82%. Wow, that's a huge jump. And the numbers on either side were not that big. It was a jump. 
and I really truly believe that it relates to these challenges and the recalibration that our brains do and our sense of self. So in that perimenopausal, watch me, I remembered the question, in that perimenopausal um, shift, what helps us to kind of take that journey into postmenopause and staying committed to what we want our life to look like, I think the key factor is self-awareness, mm-hmm. understanding what drives us, what takes us away and gives us agitation and not be able to put our head down with pride at the end of the day. That's, I think that's where the work is really most powerful in that perimenopausal shift, A, because we can be in a position where we don't understand or feel ourselves anymore and we do need to find some grounding about what's important to us and what's changing around me and within me and then, yeah, B as well, like for the future version of me, you know, is adventure my highest value? And if I want to be walking the cobblestones of some, you know, amazing Irish country town, like what do I need to fulfil that version of me and what insurance policy do I need to put on that is all around my behaviour? I'm wondering if um, the modern world that we're in is obviously incredibly addictive and toxic in regards to the psychology of things, dopamine addiction, stimulation everywhere, shorts on YouTube, you know, stories. And then, you know, these days in such a privileged country and the Western world, you know, you can get your kids to 45 extracurricular activities a week. um, And there's just so much going on. And so that makes me wonder, one, Obviously, the feminist movement has ended up in a place where now women are far more than mothers. They're also, you know, being a mum is way more than a full-time job. And then they do a full-time job. And then they do all of the other things that they're meant to do and keeping up with the Joneses and making sure they've got the right outfits for the photo on Instagram and like all of the things, you know, and obviously I'm generalizing. Mm. But my point is that women and mothers are excessively busy and stressed. And I'm curious if the the... From a psychological perspective, I don't know if we've got data on this, but I'm just curious about your thoughts. But is that, do you think 100 years ago, 500 years ago, the, that window of people was, were possibly equally as suicidal? Um, or do you think that the destruction of our brains, maybe over the course of a, you know, a full life or you know, half a life, 50 years, 60 years, um, has meant that we get to those challenges and we absolutely lack f- uh, physiological resilience because we've burnt so much of our neurocircuitry out? Mm, I have no idea about that last, <laughs> like the last bit of data. It does make me think that like women having babies for longer, sometimes that is talked about in that sense that when women have babies up and multiple babies up until into the perimenopausal shift, sometimes the shift was masked because they were still in this transition and it does make me think of some people that I've worked with where they've done that but they're still struggling with perimenopause and the only difference would be exactly as you're saying this huge stress because now they've got a toddler and they're working and they're and they're and they're you know the aging parent at the same time keeping up with the Joneses so yeah I have no idea about the female suicide rate and that jump, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to go and see if there's any data now because that's a cool question. But I do, it's so hard, right, because even back then, like as you said, the feminist shift where there was a rise of rights and 
you know, the autonomy and wanting autonomy, you know, how many of the women were happy with their lives versus how many were, you know, deeply struggling and feeling that resistance. And it makes me recall that it's not that long ago that the last uh, air quotes asylum, uh, insane asylums were shut and a lot of the um, inhabitants were women that were put in there by their husbands. Oh, my God. (laughs) Because of hysteria, Mm -hmm. which is one of the things that if we go back to old medical books, hysteria was part of a diagnosis of perimenopause or a label that was put there maybe instead of the word perimenopause. So I think it's just such a different game in that there's no... I don't know if there's any clarity. It feels like the individual stories, there could be just as much tragedy in either yeah. either side of the idea in that way. Yeah. I'm very aware that I'm I have a, a tendency to romanticize the past um, because I'm don't so, <laughs> so nihilistic about the current medical system occasionally. It's yeah. just like, ah, oh, I'm so cynical that I'm like, surely it was better before all of this corporation uh-huh. ruined us. <laughs> I'm not up for pooing in a bucket either, Maddie. I'm not up for pooing in a bucket or being chased by um, chased by lions. Yeah, yeah I get that. Neither. I neither. get that. But something you said that I think was really important as well, because like when we look at in perimenopause, we have sometimes three times as high a level of estrogen in our body that's not counted by progesterone. This sort of balance that we get that nurtures our immune system, our mental health, our sense of self you know, how quick we are to recall fear, all those kinds of things. So when the hormones are, uh, I don't say out of balance in the sense as as if there's a problem, but more this idea that we have uh, a lower level of progesterone in our body and then estrogen jumping to these higher levels or versions of this, that we do end up with our nervous system being more vulnerable to the sympathetic drive So we are more vulnerable to issues with our sleep, feeling more stressed out by the day at work, finding the juggle really, really hard. And then estrogen and dopamine have a really close connection. And in female physiology, for those that have uh, ADHD, there's a significantly higher ratio of PMDD symptoms and then the challenges that come with the mental health scenario around that and that I think that's a really important thing because the intrusive thoughts that come in with PMDD and the real putting your life right off the rails around some of the thought processes that come from that I think need to be really flagged because women need to know that that is a time to ask for help that is not a time to, yeah, sit idly around. And then we pop stress and cortisol and progesterone together. Progesterone's got a beautiful relationship with GABA, our calming neurotransmitter. But once we pop an extra little bit of stress that we're not really dealing with in there, we start losing progesterone. So the thing that's buffering our anxiety experience then slowly gets stripped away and then we are having larger anxiety or more higher stress responses on the dial of what can I deal with than might have been, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. So that things start to really layer, layer, layer. And again, to your point, if we don't have strategies in rest and recovery, knowing how to say no, knowing how to say yes, 
And even being able to sit quietly and rest and not be pulled by a feeling to go and finish that email or do this or fix something else, it's these are the things that will make perimenopause worse is stress significantly makes the symptoms worse. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. Yeah, I think um, the other thing that came to mind as you were talking there about you know, women getting to this stage of life and being confronted by some of this darkness, um, you know, and, and maybe the maybe they feel embarrassed or ashamed, you know, I'm mum or I'm me and I should have it all together and I worry about everybody else. Nobody worries about me. That's not how it works, you know, or that is how it works. Um, it, what came to mind then was sort of, again, going back to like tribal days maybe. Um, but the idea, and we're seeing this with men, right, is that there's this, this sort of proliferation of men's groups, which is happening, which you could argue is a response to the idea of toxic masculinity and men trying to reclaim masculinity in a modern society within groups of men. Um, and so the, there's men's groups kind of everywhere. And there has been for a long time, but it seems, at least to me as a man, that they're really popping up everywhere at the moment. And so I'm wondering if maybe there needs to be a return to like the red tent, if anybody's familiar with that idea. But this idea that women spend more time with one another, because that's another consequence, not of feminism per se, but the progression, the social progression of the nuclear family is that we're all locked away from one another and we've got the impending doom of all of the world's problems. And it's like the, you know, that idea of like a problem shared is a problem halved. Um, and and the, if women are in community together intentionally on a weekly basis, you know, what, whatever it might be, not just catching up with your friends for brunch, but like an intentional women's circle, um, which might have been a thing once upon a time. And it certainly was with the idea of the red tent um, and the aligning of periods and that kind of stuff within particular groups of women is that that they could get to that time of life and one, it be expected and two, be surrounded by people that understand it, get it and can guide you through it. Yeah, and I think we call them masterclasses now. (laughs) (laughs) How ridiculous. I like the red tent idea better. But I think that's the, I'm recalling one woman that I worked with and she got onto the call possibly displaying a perimenopausal symptom, but she was really pissed off. She was like, I'm suffering and I want to talk about it. But when she goes and would talk to other women, there was, maybe a closure 
it maybe as you're saying it felt like a failing that their body was failing them and it's not happening to anyone else so I'll just keep it to myself and yeah she felt deeply offended and frustrated that it wasn't an open conversation in vulnerability to find answers and every experience is uniquely different Mm -hmm. but there is truly maybe the solution is simply in hearing that other people are having challenges and being solutions and supports for each other ultimately and I think it's that's ultimately what ends up happening in some of these sessions is that we talk we put an idea forward in theory there's a solution or things to try and then the rest of it is an hour of conversation and coming back to you know watching out for our very human experience of you know, living below the line and blame and shame and justification. It's like, no, if we're going to stay above the line here and find solutions and not be having this conversation in a year's time but in a slightly more annoyed or frustrated way, yeah, it's when you get that right group of women together, it can be really powerful. Yeah, I I even see that with yeah my groups that come through. It's like first few weeks, everybody's you know feeling it out, cautious, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, the vulnerability is a bit scary because, but because you know it's strangers effectively. Um, but yeah, once some of those relationships are built on the back end, and even just on those calls, like you really see people change their energy. Um, and and by the end, it's sort of like oh, I'm, I just feel a bit calmer within myself. And whether that's the tools that I've given them, the connection and understanding of being accepted for who they are by the other women, um, I just think healing is so much easier in community. Yeah, and it's it sounds silly me saying it, but well, you know when they say you know it takes a village, and they're usually referring to raising children. Mm-hmm. I don't friend of mine returned to her motherland um, of Greece and she was describing the village she lived in and it was all the relatives living within this almost uh, U-shaped block of each other and I was like, oh, my thought of a village was, you know, your immediate family, that kind of thing. And it's like, no, it's like extended family and neighbours. It's like huge amounts of humans and you're in this close vicinity we, yeah, we don't have that. So we need to cultivate it in different ways. Yeah. And I think further to your point about these two separate tents of people gathering, like the male and female, I think a really big thing that happens in the identity of it all is sometimes the loss of sexuality for yeah. females. And it's not always the male, female, you know, high drive for the male or vice versa, but that often when we meet, we have a sex drive that meets each other. And then over time, we go back to our base version of what that is. And then we live our relationship like that. And then in perimenopause, again, the tissues of the body are all influenced by these hormones really um, intricately. And we have changes in the uh, the tissue around the vagina and we don't feel the drive as much from the neurotransmitters in our brain and that that can create a further you know separation in the relationship at home yeah so we really do have to have the two tents come together at some stage yeah for sure so that there's a clear understanding that we need to go about intimacy and affection in a different way because 
it's doable but our bodies are changing and if it's something that drives the relationship to a a breaking point and people are really wanting to not be at a breaking point there needs to be really open conversations about what's going on and what are the solutions for us as a couple yeah and i think as well that one of the added challenges um which might be disguised as an added solution is that you you know literally anywhere you are in the world you can pull your phone out as the partner that's maybe not feeling as sexually active and just watch porn, you know, and, <laughs> you know, and it's disguised as a temporary solution or maybe it's been a, a management solution for a long time if you've got a different libido to your partner. Um, but th- that can also cause the separation because then everyone, one person doesn't feel sexually motivated at all. The other person's having the, the needs met somewhere else and it's like, you know, and this idea that this, you know, obviously grows in one's mind that nothing's ever as good as this it's and then you've got the problems within the relationship if intimacy does happen because you've reconditioned yourself um to be into something different or into different options and you know various kinks and whatever um and i think that yeah possibly that's the the abundant access to that or excessive access to that type of thing is not as much of an aid as it might seem <laughs> yeah especially when you're not openly putting it to its intention or you know, giving it context within your relationship. Yeah. Because then, you know, you, there's one person going, oh, you know, now I'm not good enough or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we really need to be open with each other in that way. And I have a, a beautiful interview that I did with Dr. Jane Offer, who is perimenopause and um, sex health therapist. Um, if people want to reach out, I can share that with you. And she's got some amazing stories in there that it will you know, they make you giggle, but they're also our realities. So they're really, um, I think it's a really important conversation and it does actually flow into the exercise world as well because the pelvic floor and the pelvis are really important to each other, the diaphragm connecting to the pelvic floor as well and, you know, the stresses, it's just, yeah, it's there's an an anatomy thing going on there as well that can influence how effective we are at our exercise and how safe and injury-free we are as our body's going through this changed inflammation state as well. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously we're sort of touching on the sexual piece and libido, but how can partners uh, and family members and friends be supportive of someone that's going through this transition? Is it solely about communicating to your partner or getting them to have some kind of interest in learning about menopause or perimenopause and what's going on? Or are there other things people can do to be a part of that journey so that you one, protect the relationship, but also have a have somebody that you can lean on through through the mess. Yeah, and I guess each couple is going to be different in that sense of like feeling okay to say this is going on in my body. <laughs> it sounds like a Seinfeld line, but it's not you, it's me. <laughs> like what is that, what is, it, it's truly this is it. And I think also just being the reality that this is, a moving target and it's your body is changing and moving too. So it's sometimes I think we feel like then we need to be the boss of our body or we're scared of it or in control of it. So if we move that control agenda away and there's a level of playfulness around it, you know, these things are changing in my body and because there's things changing in his body as well that he might be feeling vulnerable about. It's not that one version of change is you know, to be nurtured more than the other. It's if we're taking this together and, you know, what's 
what's happening with you, what's happening and where do we want to meet in the middle? Well, it's highly likely that his testosterone is tanking. If it's like it's very common that men's testosterone at a very young age is tanking these days. Yeah, and then, you know, maybe go off to a doctor and get some, you know, Viagra and all of a sudden we're at very different (laughs) meeting points again and that's not helping either. So it's, yeah, I do encourage people to seek out someone in uh, intimacy counselling and that kind of space that have that understanding in perimenopause. So it's this idea that I can get to relearn my body as well Mm -hmm. and, I actually encourage, in terms of pelvic health, um, their encouragement towards self-pleasure and what that looks like in a safe way because blood flow helps keep tissue alive. So if we're not having those feelings and it's acting differently to us, then the tissue gets neglected. So, And then when we try to please our partner, I think there's some crazy statistic around the number of... um, people that will uh, have intercourse and put up with pain rather than say something to their partner for fear of offending them in some way or creating a problem. So I think that's part of the conversation as well, that all those things need to change. And then with women in in the red tent or the master classes, (laughs) I encourage them really early to get really clear on who are their support systems? So who's their cheerleader? Who's their reality checker? Who's their truth teller? You know, this whole list of who they are. And then be clear on who needs, who is it helpful for this person to know this or not? Like create the reality where you're getting the support you need and also what's it like to be around you? Ask them that question. And ask them what they need because sometimes we can get so consumed with what's happening for us that friendships can feel a little bit neglected. And, you know, maybe there are periods where there's a bit of an anxiety going on and you're wanting that support but, you know, are there skills to keep the conversation alive in both directions or can I just accept help when I'm the only one that needs it and that's okay? Yeah. It'll come back in balance in another time in life. So getting clear about that idea that we had at the start that you're not healthy by accident and that that takes a team of health professionals as well as the tribe that you need around you that help define emotional health for you as well. Yeah. I think we need to do a masterclass on communication. on how to talk to your partner and like you know the words to use and the language to use and this is for men and women and how to receive things and the language to use in receivership and I have these conversations all the time with people that would be would react when I would suggest oh just talk to your partner and like I wouldn't bring that up to my partner like I wouldn't talk about that or no I don't think he's not interested you know um yeah and there's, there's and I mean it's no it's no um, surprise to probably everybody listening, but you know, men aren't amazing at communication, generally speaking. Um, but equally, like I would also say, many women are conditioned to expect men not to be good at communication, so they're talked to like they're the third child, or um, you know, or the the extra one that sort of doesn't think the same way that I do. And so, yeah, I think I think people really do need lessons in communication. 
because a lot of people jump into situations and point the finger and they, the only way that they are able to get some of this embarrassing or uncomfortable information out is in the context of anger or in the context of judgment yeah. or in the context of throwing shade. And that's the, it's the only way that they can get themselves to a place where they're like, yeah, well, this is what I think, you know. Yeah, Here's my truth really... and, and I've got the anger out to defend the embarrassment that I'm also feeling. Yeah, I, I, that's like bravo, Maddie. I think that's it and it's a, I think part of that process is understanding the preceding feeling and how do I live with that feeling or how do I act around that feeling when I'm unconscious about it and then how do I stay above the line with being responsible also or taking responsibility and then also in there is what are our biases and beliefs. So taking some quiet time to go, what are my biases around, you know, whose responsibility my health is, you know, what what are my beliefs around, what does health look like in ageing? So I might want to be fit and healthy but my belief system tells me that oh, I'm getting too old, the gym's not for me, that's a young person's game. Yeah. Like what's under there? Like what's under your beliefs about perimenopause? You know it's a female thing, I should be keeping it to myself but then why is my relationship struggling? because I'm leaning so heavily into this belief that I have that I actually haven't pulled apart that doesn't serve me at all. So what's underneath all those that uh, agitation with why I need to go to anger rather than going, I register feeling anger. This is a hard conversation for me to get up and come to you with. Can I, I just need to say something it'll take two minutes can you please not interrupt me while I do this and what does that look like what does it look like when you bring your values to the table you know I value uh, honesty I notice when I go to talk to you about this I feel like I can't be honest and I choose not to and I bottle it up and then I end up with anger so it feels scary for me to be honest with you about this so can you please be gentle with me? And also putting your out, putting what you want out there first. I feel like this might make you feel uncomfortable and I'm really aware of that. Um, is it okay if we have a conversation about X, Y, Z? And it's conversation, like communication is wild, right? Like it's the one skill that we need the most and we're never... we're never ever taught how to do it. Like we're never taught to consider what is it like to be around me, what is this, how do I mirror what this person needs in their values, you know, it's, yeah, agreed, it's wild. But I really love that how you pointed out there that we just bottle it yeah. up and lose our shit. <laughs> Which then maybe look makes, us, makes women with menopause or perimenopause look even more crazy than they actually yeah. are because that's just the communication strategy and not the hormones. That's it. I've and at a period where the estrogens drop wildly, I cannot access my frontal lobe in the same way anymore. Yeah. And this is a true reality of what happens in the brain in this time. And I don't feel myself. How can I make sure that this person understands that sometimes I'm annoyed, but sometimes when they see me not being my true self as they know and love me, that I might need some extra support. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What does that look like? And then, you know, further to further to your comment that this idea that 
when we can be equal in what we're bringing to the game and not just come and burst into rage, then there's no reason for the partner to go out and, oh, gosh, you know, they've done it again. Yeah. They've done this again. They've lost this again. It's like let's come in with an equal level of responsibility. Let's stuff up here and there but know we're on the same page working on some challenging stuff. Yeah, that um, journey yeah. of making the unconscious conscious uh, you know, exploding and then a, a few hours later or a few days later being retrospective and analyzing what just occurred. You know, a lot of, I think it's really easy to be like, yeah, well, you annoyed me, uh, right? Instead of looking back and like what led to that moment and why was I so out of control? And I often think, yeah. um, and I'm not immune to this, so I'm not standing on my high horse over this because <laughs> I'm a human um, and I have unconscious things that come out unhelpfully, but just that skill of being able to reflect and say and analyze what's happened and review what's happened. And and I think sort of if you've experienced an emotion that is entirely out of control at the time, it's highly likely that that's linked to either just a long-term habit or some trauma or, you know, that was, that happened in the past that you're, that, that, that reaction possibly saved you from or protected you from or delayed you from. And so you've internalized it as a tool of utility for self-defense and self-protection. And so it may have served its purpose before, but obviously this recurring unconscious pattern ideally in the relationship you're in is just causing problems and it's actually not needed. That defense mechanism is not needed right now. Um, And obviously this also requires two people to sit down and say, hey, how about we talk differently? You as well, right? (laughs) Because that's like a relationship, a big shift in a relationship to be like, we've talked this way for 25 years to one another and we're still here. And like, yeah. and now we're all going to be like, these are my feelings and this is how you're affecting me. It's like some people might be really reactive to that. <laughs> yeah, that in itself. Yeah. I think in, you know, if you're coming to each other and there's some degree of meeting and some celebration that, you know, what you're dealing with is hard and you've, I know you well and you're going to be good at this. It It might be hard at times, but you got this, you're doing what's required and that level of celebration and vice versa, you know that you're at least in, you know, that good base. And yeah, I don't know. I think that, as you said, retrospectively, if I'm looking back at this, if there's no, like, because again, in the perimenopausal brain, that a little bit closer to fear and rumination, as these hormones change, being aware that how to break that circuit Mm. and go, it's, I don't want to go off. If I've told three people, I'm not looking for counsel. I'm just looking for someone to agree with me. And that's not helping me out of doing this same thing again. I'm just uh, complaining. Yeah. And when I've hit that third person, if I know that I'm going, the urge is to go and do it, tell someone else and have a good complaint and blame, hang on, that I didn't actually take on any advice. I didn't go to someone who was my reality checker. I just went to people that were going to agree with me. That's not how to become and survive this very deeply new version of a human experience mm-hmm. as well as this idea that it there's no action. So I don't get to reflect and go, here's one thing I'd like to do differently from that. It's just the we've got to make sure that that reflection actually comes to an actionable change as small as it is an actionable change rather than that same thing happened again. I'm looking back. I'm using my amazing time machine brain that I've got to look back 
And if I don't want that to happen again, what can I do differently? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this has been such a good conversation. A lot of juice in here. A lot of good stuff for people I think they're going to pull out of it. And possibly it's an episode that they can share with their partners so that we can be the introduction yeah. to the uh, these ideas rather than them being like, I've been talking to you about yeah. this for 25 years, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but where can everybody find you and your stuff online? Uh, me and my stuff. So uh, on Instagram, I'm Anna.movement and my website is uh, anamovement.com. Uh, under a little bit of reconstruction now on today's date. But, um, yeah, things, ways to connect, um, courses that are available. There's a beautiful program that I'm running at the moment with uh, uh, someone around the nutrition world as well and behaviour and beliefs. Uh, that's called Shapeshifters and um, then just all of my normal work in the background. So I look forward to meeting people if they need. Amazing. I'll pop those links down in the show notes below. So if you have enjoyed everything that Anna's been talking about and you want to get into her world, scroll down to the show notes, click the links uh, and get involved. Obviously, Anna's a legend. She's been here multiple times. Um, Thanks, mate. You're so welcome. Um, So to wrap up, what is one piece of health information you wish more people knew about? One piece of health information. I know there's so many. (laughs) I know, and I'll keep it to the topic. I'll keep it to the topic. Uh, It is, it's those day-to-day things that can be done. So I'm going to point to anxiety, knowing that that was a big part of our conversation is, you know, how many people can get pulled down the true anxiety line is that day-to-day there's a lot of things Caught in reverse anxiety, that as our body telling us, I I need something, and we've got to be listening to our body. So, are you hungry? Are you hungover? Are you under caffeinated? Are you over caffeinated? You know, are you? Is there a chemical exchange going on? Are you in a sugar crash? You like what is the thing that your body is telling you the most constantly that you're often ignoring? that make you lose your your banana in the car on the way home or, yeah, um, I wish people would take the time to pause and listen to what their body is asking them and if they've got an answer, respond with the answer. If they don't, seek out and ask for help. I think that's incredible advice. Um, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time and your energy and hopefully we can do another one soon. Cool. Thanks, Maddie. No worries. See ya. Bye. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use, and we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.